Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Landon Stores on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, The Second Red Scare and the Unmaking of the New Deal Left. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Landon. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I am fine. I'm glad to glad hear you're that. Glad to talk about my book. Yes, that's right. I'm, I'm glad you're here to talk about your book, too. Today, we are talking with Landon Storrs, who's my colleague here in the Department of History at the University of Iowa. And as she said, we'll be talking about her brand new book, brand spanking new book, The Second Red Scare and the Unmaking of the New Deal Left. I've read this book. It's terrific. There is a, just a ton of uh, really uh, wonderful and interesting research in it. She tells the lives of people... Um, who are slightly under the historical surface, so to say. You probably haven't heard of almost any of them, um, but they do have interesting stories to tell. And she does a, a really terrific job of kind of bringing their lived experience in the Second Red Scare to life and, and how it affected their careers. And especially, and this is a part of the book I really liked, how they reacted and adapted to it. Um, because people just don't fall off the edge of a cliff in a thing like this. They actually are agents. They do things. And she's uh, particularly good, Landon, you're particularly good at sort of explaining how they adapted to these uh, new political circumstances. Um, let me begin the interview by asking you, as we traditionally do here on New Books in History, to tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I am a um, uh, new at Iowa. I just moved here after teaching for 17 years at the University of Houston. And um, I uh, grew up in the Northeast, did my graduate degree at University of Wisconsin in Madison, so I'm glad to be back in the Midwest. Hmm, that's good. So tell us how you came to write this book. Well, it's really uh, a book about something that sounds very dull, the Federal Employee Loyalty Program, which I had never heard of when I started this project. I, I came into this, I almost fell into it by chance. I was interested in a human, not in a, uh, you know, a bureaucratic program, but through tracing out the lives of these various people who happened to work for the government, I became very intrigued with this um, screening program called the Federal Employee Loyalty Program that was put in place. Um, actually not as a result of, of Senator McCarthy and his ascendance in 1950, but actually it was put into place, um, uh, you know, before the U.S. had even entered World War II. So um, it started out as a, uh, uh, my trying to figure out some contradictions I was finding in the biography of one individual named Mary Dublin Kaiserling, who historians had only writ- written about... Um, for her later career in the 1960s when she was appointed to head the U.S. Women's Bureau of the Department of Labor by President Lyndon Johnson. So she was considered to be sort of mainstream uh, uh, liberal, loyal Democrat who then as head of the U.S. Women's Bureau played an important part in the sort of establishment wing of the U.S. women's movement that uh, revived in the 1960s. But as I was doing research on her earlier career, I kept finding references to her, sometimes hostile references, sometimes admiring, but calling her this radical and, you know, sometimes complaining that she was running around with all these communists. And so I asked a few people about it and um, ended up uh, filing a Freedom of Information Act request for her FBI file, which... Um, I didn't get initially, but it's a long story. But after uh, much persistence and going back to archivists over and over, we finally figured out that um, uh, there was a big uh, file on her in the office of uh, it is a sub agency of the Civil Service Commission. So I, I started doing um, 
a lot of work just on her case, but when you start reading one person's Civil Service Commission uh, investigation file, you start reading allegations about all kinds of other people because the way the FBI tended to work was to say, well, you know, who did this, who hired this person? Who did, the, who did this person hire? Who did they work with? Who did they socialize with? And so they would then comment on the, um, possible subversive tendencies of these other people. So I, I started out just working on her case and then I started tracing sort of a network of people who was mentioned in her case, including her husband, and it just exploded you know, over a period of about 10 years into a full-blown study of this federal employee loyalty program. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, it must have been exciting to kind of rebuild that world. Yes, it was exciting. Uh, it was a little creepy, actually, to be um, mucking around uh, in these files that no one had gotten access to before. Um, once I started getting the um, executive branch files through at the National Archives, I then started trying to cross-check, look up those people in the um, uh, legislative records of the Congressional in- Investigating Committee, so the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee and the House Un-American Activities Committee. And really, I, it was just a matter of luck and timing uh, that as I was doing this project and or, or, or starting it in earnest in the early 2000s, that is when the 50-year uh, rule for getting access to congressional records made made those um, collections available to scholars for the first time. In other words, if the peak of the second Red Scare was in about 1953, then in about 2003 is when the House on American Activities Committee records first became accessible. So I ended up reading those files, and then you're just reading all kinds of um, very derogatory, uh, to use to use the investigator's word, information about all kinds of people, and it's very tricky to try to sift what's true and what's rumor and uh, what's gossip. Mm-hmm. And um, so I said, it was sometimes a little uncomfortable. It, it was thrilling to have access to these records that nobody had really had a chance to sift before, but it was also somewhat disturbing to feel myself sort of turning into the, you know, the red hunter myself. So before we actually go on to the content of the book, some of these people are still alive. Yes, um, although uh, I have to say they're passing quickly. Most of them were born around 1910. So um, actually I interviewed several people who have since passed away. Um, So I feel fortunate that I had a chance to talk with them. Actually, uh, one of the unexpected uh, and nice things about this project uh, has been getting to know some of the descendants of these people who often had um, personal records that that mm-hmm. the uh, loyalty defendants had chosen not to put in archives, um, mm-hmm. and 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 they have all been uh, almost all been, been very cooperative and, and eager to learn more about their parents' history. So sometimes I'm dealing not with the um, former loyalty defendant, but with their children. Mm-hmm. I'm always envious of historians who get to talk to people who are alive. Not that you can talk to somebody who's dead, but uh, you see what I mean. Yes, I do. Um, I think some uh, people think 20th century history really isn't quite history yet. I don't don't know if I agree with that. But anyway, so your book is about the second Red Scare. I'm not an American historian. I know a little bit about the first Red Scare, but could you talk just very briefly by way of background about the first and the second? Yes, absolutely. Um, It's funny, when I was choosing a title for the book, a friend said, I don't want to read about the second anything. Just call it the Red Scare. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, no, no, I can't do that. She said, well, then call it McCarthyism or something. Mm So people will know what you're talking about. I said, I really don't want to talk, call it McCarthyism because it all got started long before, you know, he was sort of a side show or afterthought to this story. Uh, not to say that he didn't make it all a lot worse, but, um, the first Red Scare was right after, uh, World War One, right after, um, so, so 
there is a tendency, there is a pattern after major, I guess maybe during and then carrying over into the aftermath of major national security crises, there is a tendency, I think, to, um, you know, be very worried about betrayal and subversion and enemies within. Um, and then sometimes after the foreign enemy is conquered, what's left over is the search for, uh, you know, for disloyal people uh, on the inside. And so there was quite a virulent um, first Red Scare in the wake of the Bolshevik Revolution, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, you know, which happened just as the U.S. was entering the First World War. Then there was a series of mysterious bombings, uh, one of whose victims was uh, someone who worked for the Attorney General, um, Palmer, who then proceeded to conduct a bunch of raids on radical groups who he was convinced were behind uh, the bombings, although the, uh, the bombings have never been um, solved. You know, it may well have been just some random random lunatic, but um, the fact that these uh, mail bombs were being received by official, uh, high-ranking officials played into the um, fears that many Americans already had that there was a, a threat emanating from... You know, it also, you know, you had all these fairly recent immigrants from, from Italy and other parts of southeastern Europe uh, in, in, including many Jewish, uh, Eastern European Jews who were often assumed to be radical. So when you had a big strike wave after the war, a lot of people put that down, especially conservatives, I think, put that down to a, a communist conspiracy. So there were all kinds of measures. That was the first Red Scare, uh, sort of tapered by the, um, mid-twenties. Um, Which brings uh, us to the second one. Right. Uh, actually, a lot of people are, there's a collection um, by a guy named Robert Goldstein, Bob Goldstein, coming out soon about Red Scares, what does he call it, something like Red Scares between the Red Scares or something, <laughs> but arguing, arguing for a lot more continuity uh, between, between the first and two. Uh, but I think of the second one as beginning most clearly when... Um, the House on American Activities Committee. It was actually called something different at first. It was a special committee headed by Congressman Martin Dyes of Texas. It was created in 1938. Um, and in, in my view, he was um, reacting in large part to the ascendance of the CIO and the sit-in strikes and so forth, which he believed were subversive um, conspiracy. Although the, when it was created, the Guys Committee was charged with investigating um, right-wing un-Americanism as well as left-wing, and so they were also looking into fascist groups. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, obviously the Great Depression uh, had created a big opening for uh, people who were unhappy with capitalism, and some of whom went so far as to be unhappy with democracy, and so you had a surge of all kinds of um, left and right wing mm-hmm. social movements in the 30s, and um, so I think the Dyes Committee was a reaction to that. But my book argues that um, much more than we realized, uh, some of the people who very quickly got caught up in that early part of the second Red Scare were civil servants who, um, you know, were not fascists or Bolsheviks or anything else, but they were um, to the left of Martin Dyes, and um, some of them had been active um, in the Socialist Party or in the radical student movement of the early 30s, but we haven't known that because um, they figured out pretty quickly that it was not a good idea to talk about those things um, Mm -hmm. by the early 40s. I was going to say, I think by way of background also, we should say that uh, very many, uh, what we would consider to be right-thinking people mm-hmm. were, were extraordinarily interested in socialism and communism at this time. Uh, it was not, um, it was not, it didn't have the same coloration that it has today. 
That's right. Uh, I, no, I, mean, I these, should have made that clear, I, and people, I was just linking were, them. I mean, they were they were disliked uh, on the right, but but Stalin wasn't uh, a household name no. yet. Uh, you know, the many respectable intellectuals were fascinated with the Soviet experiment, at least um, at least into the early 30s, um, and and some became critical uh, and and aware of the um, undemocratic goings-on, or to put it mildly, in the Soviet Union um, earlier than others, but the communism was, um, the Communist Party USA was uh, widely admired, I think, even by many people who would never have joined the Communist Party, but it was known for, especially for its um, uh, I don't want to say progressive, but it's, it's radical stance on race equality, which really inspired a lot of um, white and black activists in the U.S. And it was also associated with, uh, in theory, with, with women's equality, with gender equality. So um, it was about a lot of things. Um, and it wasn't the American communists. You know, there's a big debate about the American communists, whether they were puppets of Moscow or whether they were just grassroots organizers for, you know, oppressed Americans. And having, having studied Moscow a little bit, I can tell you that they weren't really capable of keeping any puppets. <laughs> they were, they had, Say that again? I was saying, having studied um, Soviet communism a little bit, uh, saying that they were puppet masters in any sense is to exaggerate their ability to do anything. Um, they had yeah. plenty of stuff to do at home and couldn't right. manage all these communist parties abroad. That was a kind of pipe right. they had. Although, you know, they were influential. One of the things I like about your book is that you don't downplay the fact that this cohort of people, and we're talking about federal employees who sort of started service mm-hmm. in the 1920s and 30s, if I'm not incorrect, that, yes, that, okay. that they were, in fact, uh, to the left of, well, let's say, most people in the Democratic Party today, and they were some of them were just out-and-out socialists or communists. That's uh, yes, I, definitely out-and-out socialists. Some had, a few, I found, uh, had been communists. For, there's a sort of long and probably dry explanation of, I hoped to find lots of records of communists and also of gays and lesbians, which who we know were also purged from the government, and I, I couldn't, and I think that's because their personnel files um, <laughs> never got thick enough to be kept, and so I have to explain that in the 1980s, um, 1.7 or 1.8 million case files that were less than an inch thick were destroyed because the archives, the National Archives just didn't have room, or they decided they didn't have room to keep them and they thought they weren't of sufficient interest. So all that survives of the federal employee loyalty program from the, from an official, you know, in government archives is uh, 2,400 cases that got to be fatter than an inch thick. Mm. <laughs> and so what I'm saying is I think the communists um, and the uh, gays and lesbians were fired so fast, you know, that, that and they didn't bother with lots of appeals. The files got really thick when people did a lot of appeals and, mm. and uh, requested lots of hearings and submitted a lot of it, lots of their own writings and exhibits to try to defend themselves. Um, but anyway, so sorry to, to digress, but but actually, I don't I don't find many communists, and I'm not saying that there weren't any. Mm-hmm. It's just they weren't in the records that I. I was using, but I was certainly very conscious um, as I got into this project. It was just when the wave of new research about the extent of espionage um, by Soviet agents in the United States uh, was being aired. This was in the late uh, 1990s and, and early 2000s. There are several scholars who got access to Soviet records and also some U.S. Um, intelligence sources called the Venona uh, decrypts or transcripts. Or, uh, I can't remember the exact word, but anyway, they, they were declassified and, and analyzed, and it became clear that, in fact, um, more... It was still a matter of a few hundred people, but there were more Communist Party members involved in espionage in the U.S. than had been believed mm-hmm. to be the case. Um, so I had to take quite seriously the possibility that some of my people were 
among them. And I actually never did find anybody, but it wasn't for lack of, of trying. Um, that's, I guess, when I was saying I felt like I was becoming a red hunter because I did feel an obligation. Now that gets us all into the territory. I'm not saying that the way they were treated would have been justified if they had been Communist Party members, but um, I just, uh, you know, I wanted to be realistic about the uh, the problems of national security um, mm-hmm. as well. Uh, but, and I, um, I was going to say, ahead. and I think you were, I, the, the book comes off as very balanced in that way. Um, maybe we could actually begin talking about the uh, Federal Employee Loyalty Program itself. How, sure. How, how does it start and why? Well, let me think now. There had always been some, uh, I have an appendix in the book that sort of marches through. It's a very surprisingly long and gradual evolution because there had always been some kinds of, you know, standards, um, uh, a little bit more um, uh, security-oriented than just for private sector employees. Um and uh but what really um uh section nine A of the Hatch Act. So <laughs> the Hatch Act passed in August nineteen thirty nine, which that August nineteen thirty nine is also uh significant as the this is actually just slightly before, but this right. the Stalin Hitler uh Nazi Soviet pact which uh you know, the Communist Party USA had been very anti-fascist and suddenly turned on a dime to uh, be, be pacifist after the uh, Stalin-Hitler pact. And so there's a lot more uh, concern beginning in 39, not to mention all the events going on in the world. So uh, federal employees were prohibited from membership in any political party or organization which advocates the overthrow of our constitutional form of government. And so there was legislation um, that that started uh, in, in late 39, and then there was a succession of other, um, there was something called the Alien Registration Act or Smith Act in mid-1940 that criminalized not just for um, government employees, but criminalized advocacy of or belonging to an organization that advocates overthrow of the government. Um, the uh, There are congressional committees that the, both the Dyes Committee and, and something called the Smith Committee, which were both in the House of Representatives, uh, were investigating the National Labor Relations Board and through much of 1940. On the grounds that it had, that it was employing alleged communists. And so there's sort of a gradual drumbeat, uh, I guess from 39 to, um, I, I would say about 45 where you have people like Martin Dyes and Howard Smith very concerned about this. You have FDR saying they're, they're crackpots. Uh, I mean, President Roosevelt, you know, saying privately, oh, these people are crackpots, but you know, at first they try, the Democrats try just ignoring these right-wing extremists as they see them, uh, and then they start making little measures to try to um, absorb some of the criticism. So they create an interdepartmental committee in 1944. Uh, but when it really gets formally established is by Truman in um March of 1947. That institutionalizes a series of of screening measures that had been uh, accumulating gradually since 39. Sorry, that was kind of a unnecessarily complicated answer. But I am quite interested in that complicated early history because um, one thing I found is that back when most people in and out of government weren't taking allegations of communist sympathies too seriously. The FBI was under the auspices of this early, you know, this, the Hatch Act was interviewing civil servants and they were 
quite freely admitting, you know, well, yes, I'm, I'm a member of the Socialist Party. I would never be a communist because I, you know, oppose their undemocratic methods, but I believe socialism is a matter of good public policy and so forth. And so they're saying these things quite freely in this early period, and those things would come back to haunt them mm-hmm. later when the uh, loyalty standards tightened up and when uh, the you know, the public opinion shifted so much and the political um, power of of anti-communists became so much greater when the Cold War really kicked in in earnest. So um, I am interested in that that prehistory. Truman institutionalizes it in 47, and I can go into how it works if you want, but then he, under great pressure, he tightens it in April 51. Um yeah, actually, actually, just to interrupt you, I would actually like to talk about how the um, files were reviewed and who reviewed them. Yeah. In other words, was anybody, grand, you know, so they have this new legislation, and was anybody grandfathered in, like, okay, you already have a job, so we're not going to look at you? Um, or did they just look at everybody? No, they looked at everybody, and it was extremely cumbersome. And, you know, it's, I have to say it's um, easy to, to satirize because the way they started off was by having $2 million Government employees fill out a questionnaire. So listing all. Well, yeah, two million, for, and also they're filling out a questionnaire that said things like, "Have you ever belonged to the Communist Party? Have you ever belonged to any of the following organizations?" I should I should mention the uh, Attorney General's list of subversive organizations was. Um, uh, being developed in the in the, these early years too, and then uh, Truman's executive order made sort of made the attorney general's list an official uh, tool for loyalty screeners to use. So there was this, and the the list, the, the same person I mentioned before, Bob Goldstein, has got a book out um, called what's it called? Uh, Blacklisted, I think. Um, I'm not thinking of the title at the moment, but it's about a fairly recent book just about the attorney general's list and how sort of arbitrarily organizations got added to it. But anyway, uh, so when I was laughing about the uh, program, you know, all you had to do was lie on the questionnaire. Uh, so, So the people who got caught up in the program were the ones who had, said, yes, I belonged to the American League for Peace and Democracy, or um, I believed to the, you know, I gave money to the Spanish aid groups, um, or I gave to this, um, I forget the forerunner to the Civil Rights uh, Congress, um, the National Negro Congress, things like that, or the International Labor, you know, many of which were popular front organizations that did have Communist Party um Membership and sometimes leadership, but many people who belonged to those organizations uh, didn't, you know, weren't communists and didn't see them as, you know, themselves as following a Soviet-directed agenda. They were interested in the cause. But anyway, people. So people filled out these questionnaires. Um, they were fingerprinted, uh, and I'm. Oh, they were cross-checked in the um, files of the House Un-American Committee, and uh, I think that was the only one. Um, but there were various sort of semi-private, uh, I don't want to say vigilante, that's a loaded work, but professional anti-communist groups who had been keeping records, and so sometimes, you know, Hoover would have people check uh, mm-hmm. there, so there was a, there was a big records check. Whatever whatever could could be checked on each employee was, uh, but that usually it, I mean most people just failed through, but um, there was something like oh I can't remember the numbers right off the bat, but it was in the tens of thousands of people were subjected to what was called a full field investigation by the FBI. So if enough red flags came up in the initial screening, then the FBI did a full field investigation. That meant they went and they got your college transcripts and they talked to your professors and they talked to your landlord and they checked your credit record. They checked your voter registration, which they weren't supposed to do, but 
um, well, I don't know if they were supposed to do it or not, but the loyalty investigators weren't supposed to ask about it, but the FBI had the information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and once what, they once they compiled all this information and they had uh, culled this large two million person cohort to uh, persons of interest, what happened? Yeah. So then, um, so then I, I'm just going to pick a number. I don't think it's quite right because and it developed over several. You know, this took several years to really get up and up and running, but. Um, the number was something like, oh, here, I have it. In the period from 47 to mid-53, a total of 4.8 million employees filled out loyalty forms. Um, loyalty, something like 26,000 people's cases went before loyalty boards. So, okay, um, what's a loyalty board? So... And the administration evolved also quite a bit. But starting in 47, each agency had its own loyalty board. Um, and uh, so there was the Department of Commerce loyalty board, the uh, you know Department of Labor loyalty board, and so forth. And there were also regional loyalty boards because not all federal employees were in mm-hmm. Washington being heard by their agency there. So you had, um, there was a screening by the agency loyalty board for people in, in Washington. Uh, there was a regional loyalty people board and those were comprised of and staffed by something like 2,000 sort of ordinary citizens appointed um by the Civil Service Commission um, to to staff these loyalty boards. And this is not, I have to say, this is not my original research. Eleanor Bonticu was a lawyer who wrote a book back in 53, and she studied the, you know, because she couldn't get access at that point to any individual case records, but she at least documented the operation of the program as far as she could. And so she was the one who, uh, tried to get a handle on the number of, of loyalty board members and how they were appointed. And her general observation was that anybody who had ever been associated with any kind of controversy um, was not appointed to a loyalty board. So she found that they were basically well-intentioned, uh, upstanding citizens of their communities who often didn't know anything about you know, the political history of the left or anything like that. So, you know, might very well think that the Socialist Party was the same as the Communist Party. And um, But so you went before, you had your full field uh, investigation, and the report of that went to the loyalty board. And if the loyalty board was satisfied, that was the end of it. You usually heard that you'd been under full field investigation because somebody who was interviewed said, hey, by the way, the FBI was asking me about you. You know, a neighbor or something would, would tell you or a colleague. But uh, if the if there was uh, derogatory information in the full field investigation, then the loyalty board would issue something called an interrogatory. Mm-hmm. And the employee was asked to explain a long list of associations and statements and views and you know and some of them again it's quite easy to satirize we in the, you know 1949 someone's being told well it's reported that at a dinner party in 1934 um, you know you said something about you know Franklin Roosevelt was a fascist and you know or something like that um, so there was this kind of hearsay stuff that they were asked to explain, and they were never allowed um, to confront their accuser. This was one of the things that really bothered civil libertarians about the program is uh, there was no, you know, the FBI and the loyalty boards claimed that it was nas- on, for national security reasons. They couldn't identify any of the informants. So an employee would be told, that, well, we heard that you were sympathetic to the Negro or something like this. You know, this would be a white person, obviously, although there were some black employees caught up in this as well. But um, so they'd say, well, I, I am interested in civil rights causes or I do think, you know, 
So, but this was the kind of information they would get called in to explain. Uh, well, excuse me, they would do a written reply to inter- interrogatory. They had 10 days to answer. And then they could also, if they wanted to, request a hearing uh, on their own initiative. And the more senior savvy people started doing that uh, because they realized it sort of looked good or they decided, well, I better show that I have nothing to hide and I better demand a full hearing to, to clear my name. Um, uh, but the committee, the loyalty board could also insist on a hearing, even if someone didn't request it. And then you could appeal up to the um, loyalty review board, which is a cent- central agency. This, I'm sorry, this is such a long answer, but it was a very well, bureaucratic, very bureaucratic process yeah, well, that cost fine. millions and millions of dollars. And I don't think ever caught a single communist, uh, or well, it must have caught. They must have identified communists, but it never caught a single spy, is what mm-hmm. I meant to say. Mm-hmm. Quite a different thing. Um, so, um, and initially you had, you could appeal um, uh, quite a bit, and then in 53, Eisenhower eliminated the um, some of the repeal, and he also expanded the scope of the loyalty program. To, it became called the Loyalty Security Program, and this is when he expanded a lot of the issues related to morals, morals charges, um, and so forth. Um, um, and so you had all kinds of people getting investigated for drunkenness or moral turpitude, mm-hmm. adultery, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, so I, mean, I think that's... Yeah. Let me, uh, let me ask I, this. Once they uh, decided that you were, I don't know if this is the right word, but you were disloyal, what happened to you? If you didn't appeal, you're just like, okay, they, they've said you're disloyal. You were separated. Separate. Called. You, were, separated. you were dismissed. Separated on uh, loyalty grounds. And um, that was it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, a, a, and if you resigned before then, uh, you were flagged. It was, you know, they put a uh, little form, it's kind of a little three-by-five card form um, attached to your file that said resigned before completion of investigation, uh, you know, flag. So that meant if you applied for something again, they would update the full field investigation and, you know, repeat the interrogatory and so forth. Mm -hmm. Do do we know Um, how many people were dismissed in this way? Um. It's very hard to know, um, and I, that's another whole appendix. Um, Ralph Brown in 1958 did a study just of the published reports of the Civil Service Commission, and he estimated that there was something like um, 9,000 dismissals and 12,000 resignations, but, but there was a lot of guesswork um, involved in that. I, I haven't found anything mm-hmm. to... Uh, replace or improve on those numbers. Um, part of the problem is that the um, what was being measured changed uh, o- over time. Um, the, the numbers I just gave were for the sort of 1947 to 53 period, which is the clearest um, clearest period. The kinds of dismissals changed a lot um, after 53, and the central review board was abolished and it stopped so the, the the monthly reports on how many dismissals there had been stopped. There was a big fight um, in 55 and 56 between Democratic uh, congresspersons and Vice President Nixon over the so-called numbers game involved in the, in the dismissals with Nixon had been claiming that that since Eisenhower came in they'd had to sweep out thousands of you know, leftist Truman appointees, and that mm-hmm. turned out to be not true at all. But so the th- whole thing, of course, had a very partisan mm-hmm. uh, uh, quality. But so, so what happened to you? So you, uh, uh, so we, <laughs> so you, if you got fired, you were really in in some trouble because state and local governments wouldn't hire you. And as things, you know, by the by the early fifties, m- most um, or many, many private employers were emulating 
the public model. And for anybody who was working on government contracts, they had to. Mm -hmm. There was a whole other program that's not included in the numbers I just mentioned. There was industrial security program, port security program. So anybody who's doing government contract work, um, you know, was subject to screening the same person, Ralph Brown. Uh, his 1958 book estimates that about a fifth of the workforce was subject to loyalty screening um, in in the 1950s. Um, but so it got very hard to get employed uh, elsewhere. And and that's been documented before. I mean, I think the horrors of, of you know, the casualties of McCarthyism, that, that has been talked about, you know, that people know about the blacklisting of mm-hmm. of Hollywood people and uh you know how their their public school teachers who were fired and so forth. But what we haven't know what I'm particularly interested in also is the effect of the loyalty program on the all the people who weren't fired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the people who stay in government um but they've been through successive rounds of screening and they know that they're under surveillance, um, uh, and so I'm kind of curious about how that affected their mm-hmm. uh, what they were willing to say, what they advocated, and, and so. Uh, let's talk about some actual people, and uh, two of them, if I recall correctly, are the Kaiserlings. Could you talk a little bit about them? Sure. Um, uh, Mary Dublin Kaiserling. Uh, she was Mary Dublin until she married in 1940. Uh, she is pretty well known to U.S. women's historians, but her husband is much more famous to historians in general, Leon Kaiserling. He uh, was a real hotshot lawyer, also uh, with economics training. During the New Deal, he was Senator Wagner's legislative assistant and so did a lot of the drafting so behind the scenes for key New Deal legislation. Um, the National Labor Relations Act, also called the Wagner Act, um, the U.S. housing legislation that came in several pieces um, in the late 30s. Uh, and then under Truman, he became, well, he first he drafted, uh, in effect, the full employment um, bill that became the Employment Act of uh, 1946, and that act called for the creation of a council of economic advisors. He became one of the first members of that, and then uh, in 1950, he became chair of Truman's Council of Economic Advisors, so he was quite influential. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do these people get uh, caught up in this second Red Scare? Well, um, you know, if you look at the headlines from the 50s, you'll see that in 1952, the Kaiserlings were attacked. Uh, you know, there are these huge, giant banner headlines about McCarthy accusing the Kaiserlings. But the McCarthy accused just about everybody of being a communist. So that had faded away pretty quickly. And you know, in the 60s, the Kaiserlings uh, were both very centrist Democrats, um, they supported Lyndon Johnson, they staunchly defended his policy in Vietnam when many um, left of center Democrats did not. So people had thought they knew the Kaiserlings. I, I, Leon Kaiserling is probably best known as someone who um, advocated what's called vital center liberalism. He moved away from sort of the redistributionist economic policies of the New Deal and toward the um, Truman era post-war period's emphasis on growth rather than redistribution. And uh, he's been, you know, variously admired or maligned for that view. So I was quite intrigued to discover that, and it's a very long story how I discovered it, but, you know, Mary Dublin was my first person that I investigated, and I, after great difficulty, got her Civil Service Commission file, and then by a um, an odd coincidence, she's um, related to a historian whom I happened to know, and he, well, they're really a couple, Tom Dublin, her, her nephew, and his wife, the U.S. women's historian, Kitty Sklar, 
helped me get access to some materials she had not archived. Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately, she had not uh, destroyed them all, although she spent much of her later years um, shredding shredding papers. But so, um, so I was able to read things that the investigators never got. And um, I didn't, you know, she was not a communist agent or spy or anything like that. But she also had not been completely straightforward in her, during her various interrogations and hearings. And she had been um, a very articulate and active socialist in the 1930s. And I also found some letters uh, that she had written to her parents as she was studying and traveling abroad and so forth. Um, and then years later, in 2007, the Internet plays an odd, <laughs> you know, I couldn't have really done this, um, it might interest you in particular if you're interested in new media, but I, I just, um, I was Google searching Leon Kaiserly <laughs> and, you know, just something mundane. I think I was trying to find out some basic fact that I didn't feel like going over to pull out the filing cabinet drawer and I Googled it and some papers had just been deposited at the College of Charleston archives hmm. uh, in South Carolina. I thought, what the heck? I mean, I knew he was raised in, uh, I, think, I think they say Beaufort, uh, South Carolina, but uh, so it turned out that his brother had kept a bunch of the family papers and his brother, his brother had just passed away and the brother's spouse um, had interesting person in her own right, but she had just donated these private letters to, so I trotted down to Charleston in December of 2007 and, uh, you know, just almost on a hunch. And sure enough, there were very similar letters uh, long before Leon ever knew Mary, um, while he was a Harvard student um, and then an early New Dealer writing to his dad about uh, well, you know, the New Deal is all very well, and, you know, of course you have to favor Roosevelt over Hoover, but frankly, nothing's going to really change without a socialist revolution and, mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, you know, and I don't mean to say that this is some kind of huge, um, shocking, bad dirt, but it's very surprising to anybody who's ever, I mean, a lot of people have written about Leon Kaiserling, and he's always been. Uh, and and that's because he, um, uh, in the early 40s, both of them um, are rising in separate places in government. They get married in 1940. She's working in a whole succession of war agencies. She was a very good economist. Actually, I found a funny observation by, I think it was Wilbur Mills, uh, saying to John President John Kennedy years later, oh, Leon Kaisling, he learned everything he knows about economics from his life. <laughs> he was trained as a lawyer. But anyway, um, they were both rising stars. Um, he, he, more prominent, of course, because um, he started in government sooner, but also as a man, he had mm-hmm. more options. Uh, and so they started, you know, and they espoused um, the left edge of all the policy options there were on, on housing and on full employment and on uh, price control and all different kinds of other um, uh, issues. Um, and so they started getting investigated um, mm-hmm. pretty quickly. And it's it's a very, very long story. I mean, their files are possibly the biggest files. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Ralph, Ralph, Bunch is another very big file, but mm-hmm. just mountains of of hearings and FBI reports. Um, but they're both cleared in '48, but then they're really dragged into it in earnest in '51. And I find they start really changing the language with which they um, describe their own past views, and and then going forward they. Um, were always very careful to foreground their anti-communism and people who didn't know, scholars who didn't, and just the general public, not knowing that they were uh, being investigated for years because it was all behind closed doors until McCarthy briefly got a piece of it through a leak in 1952. But um, people have just always let off the 
in discussing the Kaiserlings by talking about what staunch anti-communists they were. Um, mm-hmm. And that was really something that developed quite late as a defensive um, mechanism. I don't mean that they were pro-communist earlier, but what I mean is that they found it necessary to frame every policy in terms of um, sort of Americanism and and um, patriotism and a free world and you know they had to sort of join in on the demonization of of communism mm-hmm. well this is one of the things I really uh, thought was interesting about the book is that these people were uh, in addition to wanting to help the United States let's put it that way they were patriotic people uh, they were also political animals and they knew how to reshape themselves and they did actively. Yes. yeah they did yes. and they, they weren't alone in doing this no, they weren't. Uh, and so, so the Kaiserlings turned out to be probably my, my biggest and juiciest, well, really the best documented case. Um, but I was startled to, to uncover quite, quite a few others, um, just through following leads from one person's file to another. And then also I got better at making educated guesses. And I was also, I did a lot of research in private anti-com. I went out to the Hoover Institution. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, another Google search <laughs> led me to um, a wonderful man who unfortunately has since passed named uh, uh, Nathaniel Weil, who had been a communist, and then he became a virulently, virulently uh, right-wing anti-communist, and then he ended up, uh, I think, voting for Kerry right before he died in, in, in early 2005. But... Um, he had been one of the key witnesses in the Kaiserlings case, and he had been friends with the, both the Kaiserlings in the early 30s. And so I, I thought, oh, how, I wonder where this guy is, if his papers are anywhere. And I googled Nathaniel Weil, and lo and behold, there was he had a web page. He was 90 <laughs> something years old, and he had his own web page with a picture and an email address. And so we developed a long phone. Uh, telephone mm-hmm. relationship and he uh, was one of the many people who confirmed that they're just preposterous to think he, you know, he would have known if, if Leon and Mary were underground communists uh-huh. because right. he was um, but um, well let me let me ask this I don't we're, we're yeah we can sorry. talk forever uh, right I only I, gave I, you one case but yeah. there, there the point is I became interested in it as a as a larger uh, mm-hmm. as a cohort Issue and not everyone reacted the same way. I mean, you're right. There, people were were agents, and the Kaiserlings uh, were survivors, and they compromised and reinvent. They compromised and reinvented themselves. Others, others didn't. And I think different reader, readers will find different favorite characters. Um, but but, um, but yeah, there, there's a story. I they're about. Uh, it's a collective. Profile of about mm-hmm. forty people looked at closely out mm-hmm. of about six hundred. Yeah, pages back in the day, today. we used to call that prosopography. That was before we uh, wanted people to read our books. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you remember that prosopography. Yeah. I, prosopography. I, I think I've heard that word, but I was yeah. told not to use it. Yeah, you should never ever use that word under any circumstances. Um, so I wanted to ask about uh, homosexuality because it plays quite a large role in the book, and it turns out that there was this kind of conflation, at least in the minds of some of uh, communism and homosexuality, that, that, that these boundaries were more porous than one might think. Because today it's absurd that they yes. would be, uh, but then it wasn't. No, uh, that's right. Well, um, and actually here I have to give the nod to um, a recent book called The Lavender Scare by David Johnson, and he's the one who's really um, done this, the, the critical research on this. As I said, I didn't find as many cases involving homosexuals as I as I thought in this group of um, surviving, small group of surviving records. But absolutely, there was a perception that um, communist gender roles were all screwed up, yeah. you know, that because communists stood for gender equality and racial equality, I mean, in the South, the great fear was of racial amalgamation, and so there was always talk about how white girls were being encouraged to offer themselves to Negro boys as a way of recruiting them into the party. Um, in uh, places where race, race wasn't the key thing, there was often a lot of fear of women becoming uh, 
domineering, uh, asexual, you know, bad mothers, um, and then the corresponding male, um, effeminate, um, you know, beaten down. Um, it, there were a lot of different variations on the on the ideology towards homosexuality, but the idea that the Communist Party that had had nationalized women had said that um, men and women are equal, women uh, have the same right and obligation to work and paid labor as men, and we're going to create public day nurseries, and you know the idea that. Husbands have property rights and their wives is bourgeois. All this stuff created this kind of perception that um, the communists were against monogamy, against um, against marriage, against what Americans, many Americans thought of as the appro- appropriate role of male breadwinner and female dependent. Uh, and so, um, but you know, there's this also idea, this idea that homosexuals wanted to be dominated. Um, I think this was, the focus was really on male homosexuality and so the, they were drawn to the um, Communist Party because it offered such a strong guiding hand um, and they, you know, were kind of supposedly turned on by following the party discipline. I mean, it's all nonsense, but remember, this is the sort of early ascendance mm. of, of psychology right after the war, and so uh, as a national security concern, the fear was, and many congressmen articulated this, and there were hearings and so forth. Um, there's one particularly famous document from 1950 about the problem of having homosexuals employed by the government, but the concern was that homosexuals were so ashamed that they would be, uh, um, that civil servants who wouldn't want to be exposed would be subject to blackmail mm-hmm. by Soviet agents. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, lots of people pointed out, well, you know, there are a lot of other reasons, you know, how about people who are adul- adulterers? Um, you know, they could be blackmailed or you could, or you could threaten to, you know, hurt somebody's children. I mean, there are lots of ways of blackmailing people, but the homosexual menace was a huge, mm-hmm. Um, concern, and so there were there were all kinds of things that played into that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I have to say we're about to run out of time, but I want to ask one final question before I sure. ask our traditional final question. That is, okay, uh, how did all this end? Well, um, the sort of legislative wind down, the the reform, the program got reformed by a series of. Uh, investigations, congressional investigating committees investigating the program and reviewing it and a series of court decisions in the late 50s so that by 1962, um, you know, there was one loyalty official saying, oh, goodness, you know, 90% of the people who got dismissed 10 years ago would have been fine today. Uh, but so that's one way of answering how it ended, it, it, uh, you know, it the, the wrongs were righted and, you know, the program was reformed and people came to their senses. I think, um, in a way, it didn't end because you still had that cohort of people who, many of whom were, were still influencing policy or were, were public spokespersons in some way. And I think, I think that, that, um, decade and a half uh, or more of, of sort of repression of anything that might sound socialistic, uh, which for, you know, some people meant uh, national health insurance or, or public daycare or something, mm-hmm. you know, that, that those things could not be strongly pressed for, mm-hmm. um, at, at least not in any terms that might be critical of um, private initiative or, mm-hmm. you know, market autonomy. So, um, and I think it also lasted in terms of uh, longer in terms of memory and our understandings of the period. So I think the legacy is still with us, even though the program is not. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. You can just look at, I know very little about American history, but I do know that uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy ran on a s- just strikingly and starkly anti-communist platform. 
Yes, yes, that's right. He was one of. He the, wanted I think to be he, more anti-communist than anybody. I think he was the only Democratic senator, or one of them, who did not join in censuring uh, McCarthy. Yeah. When the Senate censured Senator McCarthy in 1954. Right. And that was something that a lot of people held against yeah, JFK. That's interesting. Well, thank you much uh, for talking w- with us today. We've been talking with Thank Land- you Landon so stores. much for listening. Oh, I no, really enjoyed it. Great. Uh, uh, we've been talking with Landon about her book, The Second Red Scare and the Unmaking of the New Deal Left. Landon, we have a traditional final question here on new books in history, which I will ask uh, as follows. What are you working on now? <laughs> um... <laughs> I have so many threads uh, <laughs> to follow from this first, uh, from this most recent book that I'm, it's hard for me to answer that question um, because there are a lot of things I wanted to go deeper into and couldn't. I, I'm particularly interested in a couple of people who um, moved out of the U.S. domestic policy realm into uh, international organizations like um you know, UN agencies, um, uh, Latin American community development projects and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm particularly interested in uh, somebody named Caroline Ware, who's one of my, my um, favorite case studies in the, in the second Red Scare book, but I didn't re- really get to, you know, do more than scratch the surface of her her work. So um, I think that's what I'll be doing next is seeing, chasing these people as they sort of make a diaspora away from the U.S., the civil service diaspora uh, abroad, trying to find a different um, terrain on which to pursue their interest in social democratic policy. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we look forward to seeing that book, and we'll have you back on the show when you finish it, okay? Anyway, okay. Thanks very much All for right. being, being with us today, Landon. Okay. Thanks so much, Marshall. All right, bye. bye. You've been listening to an interview with Landon Stores about her book, The Second Red Scare and the Unmaking of the New Deal Left. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.